the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season six of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. As always, thank you very much for tuning in. In this episode, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bobby Weir's debut solo album, Ace. It's chock full of great songs that became Grateful Dead staples. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast and check out all of our past episodes, including the complete seasons one through five, and you can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen where you'd like to listen. Please help this podcast by subscribing, hitting that like button, and leave us a review. Thank you very much. Have you checked out the transcripts we now have for most of our episodes? Head over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index and click the transcript link on the episode you'd like to explore. Well, speaking of Ace, just announced is the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of Bobby Weir's first solo album, and there are a few configurations you need to know about. For this new collection, Bobby remixed the original album, and he pairs that with a new live version by Bobby Weir and Wolf Brothers, Recorded earlier this year at Radio City Music Hall, featuring the Wolfpack with special guests Tyler Childers and Brittany Spencer. Our own Jesse Jarno even wrote the liner notes. There will be a two-CD version as well as a custom high-roller pearl-white vinyl release available exclusively from Dead.net, both with a release date of January 13, 2023. A black vinyl version of Ace will follow on February 3rd. You can pre-order any and all of the Ace releases and merch over at dead.net. Thanks to everyone who has left their stories over at stories.dead.net. We are now asking you to share your stories of serendipity, miracles, and the most unbelievable craziest stories ever told. Share those stories over at stories.dead.net and you just may hear yourself on the Deadcast. Well, back after a multi-year hiatus, the Grateful Dead returned to cinemas worldwide for the 2022 Meetup at the Movies. This year features the previously unreleased concert film from April 17, 1972, captured at the Tivoli Concert Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark. Join us to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Dead's legendary Europe 72 tour with this epic show in cinemas for two nights only on November 1st and November 5th. Tickets and more information over at meetupatthemovies.com. Seven of the eight songs on Bobby Weir's solo debut Ace became Grateful Dead classics. Ace also marked the beginning of Weir's long-running collaboration with lyricist John Perry Barlow and spawned such classics on this recording as Cassidy, Looks Like Rain, Black-Throated Wind, and Mexicali Blues. Pull up a seat at the table and let's see what cards our dealer Jesse Jarno has in store for us. In the late spring of 1972, Bob Weir's solo debut, Ace, made its way into record stores. 
featuring eight songs by Weir, with backing almost entirely by the Grateful Dead. Recorded over two weeks in February and finished in under a month, the story of Ace is a few years longer than that. And since this is Bob Weir we're talking about, the story isn't always linear. Woo! would both introduce Bob Weir to the world and transform his role in The Grateful Dead, neither of which happened overnight either. The oldest piece of Ace is its title, named, of course, for the famed leader of the San Francisco band, Bobby Ace and his cards from the bottom of the deck. Please welcome to the Deadcast, Bobby Ace, also known as Bobby Weir. We went through a sort of a, an intense little cowboy phase early on. We were sort of listening to country music. And we, a lot of us had little mini ranches that we were uh, we were running. And so I had a ranch out in Nicasio and I was raising horses. And it was basically a little self-inflicted dust bowl. But uh, my girlfriend was, at the time was, uh, was big into raising horses. And by God, that was what we were going to do. And, uh, and the other guys were into... Uh, all it, none of us were raising cattle. I'll put it that way. We were we we're all raising horses. Uh, Billy had a ranch. Mickey had a ranch. Uh, you know, we had horses and goats and stuff like that. Peacocks. I was just starting to sing and write and all that kind of stuff. I was young. I was in my early twenties, like you know, twenty-one maybe. And I was just starting to sing and write and stuff like that. So guys, you know, came up with a nickname for me. I was Bobby Ace and. It pretty much stuck. I don't know where it came from. Bobby Ace and his cards from the bottom of the deck starts turning up on occasional posters for under-the-radar dead gigs in the spring of 1969 as they began their transition into cowboy territory. Weir's friends would deploy the name when he was trying out his new Bobby Ace persona with the new Riders of the Purple Sage, as heard in this August 1969 show on the dawn of the new Riders of the Purple Sage box set from the Owsley Stanley Foundation. Is a famous Bobby Ace in the audience? Let it, let him get it on up here if he can. First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride. On a freight train leaving town, never knowing where I was bound, no one could change my mind but Mama tried. Bobby Weir received his first songwriting credits on Anthem of the Sun in 1968. The first was for The Other One, instantly a signature jam with the dead. Though not much by way of songwriting besides its distinct 6-8 groove. Another was born cross-eyed. I love Born Cross-Eyed, but it wasn't until 1970's American Beauty that Weir found his voice. Sugar Magnolia, blossoms blooming, that's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by 
We talked with Weir about Sugar Magnolia during the American Beauty season of the Deadcast. It was that album, along with its companion, Working Man's Dead, that kicked the door open for the band, virtually earning them carte blanche at Warner Brothers. Jerry Garcia recorded his first solo album in the summer of 1971, and shortly thereafter, both Bobby and Mickey Hart earned contracts of their own. The success also earned Weir something else. 70 or 71, I took my first ever vacation uh, myself. Uh, our manager, John McIntyre in, in Barlow, and uh, we uh, hopped in uh, McIntyre's beat-up old Saab and drove down to Mexico and spent, you know, most of a month down there. One of their destinations was Guadalajara, where they stayed with Curly Jim Stolero, the hate ashbury character who taught Weir, me and my uncle, a half dozen years earlier, as we discussed during our Skull and Roses season. He was a dope dealer. He, he sold pot for a living. And in Mexico, Jim and his wife had begun to grow it. I wonder whatever became of him. Well, Bobby, you can stay tuned for our Rolling Thunder 50 episode, coming soon to a dead cast near you. I had to get back for gigs, but they stayed down there. It was a vacation that would set the stage for Ace, as well as one of the longest creative partnerships of Weir's career. While manager John McIntyre and Bobby's boarding school friend John Perry Barlow hung out in Mexico, Weir headed north. Back home, in late January or early February 1971, was probably when Weir finished up his first two songs for Ace. Both were created for another album, though, written in collaboration with Mickey Hart and dead lyricist Robert Hunter. And it was probably in this window that early versions of both were tracked from Mickey's long-delayed 1972 solo debut, Rolling Thunder. Both songs would debut with the dead at the Capitol Theater in Portchester in February 1971. One had been gestating for quite some time. the instrumental theme known as the Main Ten, performed November 8, 1969 at the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco, now Dick's Pick 16. There are a few different stories about where it came from. One, from Weir, is that David Crosby came up with the riff during a jam at Mickey's Barn. It started threading into dead jams by early 1969. When Mickey turned his barn into a proper studio, it was one of the first pieces they tried. Robert Hunter recalled the process slightly differently, beginning with Mickey's 10-4 rhythm part. Here's Hunter speaking with WLIR in 1978. Mickey had a rhythm for it, and I wrote the, uh, the words to uh, Mickey's rhythm. And then we uh, came in, dug it, and uh, Mickey asked him to uh, put the chords to it, and, which he did, and that's about all there was to that. However it got to him, it would take Weir roughly two years to transform the riff in 10-4 into a popular Grateful Dead song. Now, 
band would first be released on Skull and Roses in 1971, and we got way into Robert Hunter's alternate lyrics and other songwriting bits on the first episode of our season about that album. It would continue to evolve before making it to Ace, and we'll check in again on it later. The other first draft that Weir would debut in February 1971, and which, after a good bit of editing, would become the first song on Ace, also grew from experiments at Mickey's Ranch. That was the sound of the water pump at Mickey Hart's Ranch in Novato, the rhythm that inspired the writing of what became Greatest Story Ever Told. The following pieces are from David Gantz's miniature radio documentary, The Greatest Pump Song Ever Wrote. This interview clip with Bobby is from 1981. That one started out with a, with a rhythm guitar lick. Actually, that one started out with a pump that Mickey had. He'd recorded a pump and told me to write a song. That pump was in C. Whatever it was doing, it was in C. Yeah, it had pitch. And so I I ran the pump, the tape, the pump, the pump tape, and just built a sort of a chorus structure around it. He suggested that uh, that I pattern the song after uh, Froggy went to court and heated rud. We'll interrupt here slightly, in case you're not familiar with the old folk song Froggy went a courtin. It can be traced back to Scotland in the mid 15th century, but we'll just start with a bit of the Pete Seeger version from American Favorite Ballads, Volume Two, from 1958. The standard text for many a folky. Froggy went a courtin and heated rud. Froggy went a cordon, he did ride, sword and pistol by his side. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You can totally sing it along with the pump tape. And then, uh, and then Hunter responded by, uh, uh, you know, Froggy went a cordon and he did ride. Well, Moses come riding up on a quasar was about as close as, uh, as uh, Hunter could get. how Greatest Story Ever Told sounded on the opening night of the Europe 72 tour, not long after the Ace sessions. From a distance, there are a bunch of things that playing in the band and Greatest Story Ever Told have in common. The first is that neither was written by sitting down at an instrument and matching chords to words. Both came with their own methods of composition. Both were recorded in early versions for Mickey Hart's Rolling Thunder, and both would undergo at least one major change before the Ace sessions. Another thing the two songs have in common is that their lyricist was Robert Hunter. When Hunter arrived back in the Bay Area in September 1967, he took up the position of the band's lyricist-in-residence and worked mostly with Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh. He began writing with Weir on Sugar Magnolia in 1970 and immediately began squabbling with Weir over Sugar Magnolia in 1970. 
It's often cited that the pair's songwriting partnership dissolved backstage at the Capitol Theater in February 1971, still fighting over Weir's lyric, Jumps Like a Willis in Four-Wheel Drive. While I have no doubt that Hunter didn't like that particular edit and never forgot it, I also wonder if the fight wasn't really about Greatest Story Ever Told, which was then in the active process of revision at the Capitol. If you ever thought the image of Moses riding in on a quasar, that is, a quasi-stellar object, felt out of place, Robert Hunter might agree with you. I didn't put that. I wrote Moses came riding in on a guitar, and we didn't want to sing that, and I exchanged quasar for it, and he thought, oh, that's great. And then subsequently I thought, wait, it doesn't fit that song in any way. You know, guitar fits it. It's a wooden image. It has wood in it, you know, wood and metal, and there's fences and stuff like that. It It fits the textures that are happening in the song. Quasar does not fit it. That comes from outer space. Weir sang it with Hunter's lyric at the debut on February 18, 1971 at the Capitol. But the next night, later released as Three from the Vault, Hunter was at the Capitol that week with the band, and In the Bar Car might have been his revision too. But it lasted all of two versions. On February 21st, now on Working Man's Dead 50, the third and final draft was just right. This is Robert Hunter talking with David Gans in 1977. I love to write with Weir. Well, he makes me work awfully hard. He's a very, very hard man to satisfy. So he'll want something to sound more uh, textural a lot. He's not looking for the, uh, the telling phrase, like real apt combination of words to, to, to fire off a thought or an emotional process more. He's looking uh, more for watercolor. He doesn't go for the sharp social comment song. I haven't worked with him as much as I might, considering how much I respect his work. He's, uh, I think he's put together a damn good song. But I have a tendency not to want to write the sort of things that he wants in his songs, although I will. He wants something different out of a song than I do, basically. Sometime that week at the Capitol, in February 1971, Weir and Hunter got into a tiff over Weir's lyric rewrites. They had a bunch of other songs in the works and would continue working together very occasionally through the later 70s and 80s, but their much-mythologized fight was also a decisive beginning point for what became Ace. Also backstage at the Capitol was Weir's old friend John Perry Barlow, fresh from their trip to Mexico. Hunter turned to Barlow and told him that Weir was all his. Barlow died in early 2018, and as usual, we have our friend David Gans to thank for a pair of interviews today both featured in David's eyebrow-spinning book, Conversations with the Dead. These first bits come from November 1982. Bobby had just started writing songs, really, and he and Hunter had worked together on a few of them, but very few. And their, their uh, relationship as co-conspirators was a bit flawed, as are all of them, but you know, they, didn't, they didn't quite have the same rapport. So Bobby said, well, you know, you're, you write poetry, you might try your hand at writing song lyrics. And I wasn't doing anything else, so I, I did try my hand at it. I 
sort of uh, made up some things that sounded like sound lyrics. We spent a, most of a month listening to Mexican music, you know, because that's what's on the radio. And so that was kind of ringing around in our heads. Barlow, too, was thinking about their south-of-the-border adventure and what they were hearing constantly on the Mexican radio. But according to Barlow, what was ringing around in his head was a song written by Chris Christopherson, but brought to the toppermost of the country and western poppermost in 1970 by Johnny Cash. And there's nothing short of dying That's half as lonesome as the sound Of the sleeping city sidewalks And Sunday morning coming down first one was uh, Mexicali Blues, and I was just stricken when I heard what kind of a setting he'd chosen for it. But, Why? Because you know, it was a whole different thing than what I had in mind, but it turned out to be okay. Laid back in an old saloon with a peso in my hand, watching flies and children on the street. And I catch a glimpse of black-eyed girls who giggle when I smile. There's a little boy that wants to shine my Expecting uh, a polka, very brassy polka. Right? No, I, no, I certainly you didn't. You were more of a desperado feeling. Yeah, that was that was what I had. In mind. <laughs> I thought this is going to be swell. In his memoir, Mother American Night, Barlow wrote, "These days, I know it would be tricky to write a song referring to a presumably physical relationship with a girl who was just 14 years old, even though everything in the song was purely imaginary. I did it because Weir had specifically asked me to write a cowboy song." Hoping that maybe something would be there, I just turned on the song faucet. I still like the last verse. Is there anything a man don't stand to lose? When he lets a woman hold him in her hands You just might find yourself out there on horseback in the dark Just riding and running across those desert sands If the character in the song is by no means a good person, he certainly faces the consequences. Well, some consequences. Of all the songs on Ace, Mexicali Blues not only holds the distinction of staying in the Grateful Dead repertoire continuously through 1995, but of undergoing the fewest subsequent tweaks over the years. With the exception of the album's sole song that didn't make it into the lasting songbook, every other tune on Ace would undergo additional adjustments. But the way Mexicali Blues sounded in 1972 is more or less how it sounded in 2022, when Weir staged a pair of Ace 50 concerts at Radio City Music Hall in New York, now the second disc of the expanded Ace 50 reissue. Though Mexicali Blues might be cancelable, and not just because it's a polka, we'll shout it out to Mexicali Blues, the popular chain of heady stores in the greater Portland, Maine area, who actually outranked the original song in Google. But Mexicali Blues, the song, didn't just create a first set standard for Weir, it created a new partnership. And since then, he and I have been working on things more or less continuously, sometimes over the phone, sometimes at the ranch, sometimes in California. Sometimes hardly at all. I caught my groove. It's just, I finally 
got the drift of how things are done, kind of. I mean, you never really get the drift of how things are done if, for songwriting, but I kind of fell into it. It is not easy trying to write with somebody, but those things have a certain advantage. I mean, in spite of the amount of turmoil that goes on, and it's a lot like being married, actually. Sometimes we just can't stand each other over uh, what are fundamentally uh, aesthetic differences. But fortunately, you know, as, as with being married, we've been good friends for so long that, you know, we've got a fallback position if things get too scary. Mexicali Blues debuted alongside the Dead's new piano player, Keith Godshow, in October 1971, along with two other weird songs, one of which would make its way to Ace. version of One More Saturday Night from Dave's Picks 3, recorded October 22, 1971 in Chicago. Along with Jack Straw, the other song debuted at those October shows, which we explored during our Europe 72 season, One More Saturday Night was one of the last pieces to emerge from the original Bob Weir-Bob Hunter songwriting partnership. But you won't find Robert Hunter credited for it. On Ace and Elsewhere, Weir has the songwriting credit alone. Though Robert Hunter wrote the first draft for One More Saturday Night, it apparently had pretty different lyrics and a different title. Here's Robert Hunter speaking with Dennis McNamara on WLIR in 1978. The song that did uh, One More Saturday Night was uh, originally U.S. Blues. He got it into his mind to rewrite the lyrics. And then he still wanted to call it U.S. Blues. I said, no way, I'll write another U.S. Blues, you know, which I did. Slip a bookmark there for another day. In the end, one more Saturday night was Weir's and Weir's alone. He told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, The song is my attempt at poetic images. It's my dream world of what kids do when they're out for a good time on a Saturday night. One more Saturday night would transform each and every room into Saturday when it was performed. Scorching hot take incoming. I said this during our Europe 72 season, but though the dead became known for playing it on Saturday nights, I think it's cooler on other evenings. With a good handful of songs ready to go, more than would fit onto the next Dead album, what with Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter's songwriting hot streak and all. It was about time for Weird to pursue a solo album of his own. This is from John Perry Barlow with David Gans on K-Fog in 1986. It's also the, the first of our collaborations. We, had, we hadn't set up ideas about ourselves uh, no, as collaborators. Uh, we were going at everything from a purely fresh standpoint. And it was also written in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the winter. And I was just getting used to the idea of being back in Wyoming and, 
Weir was just getting used to the idea of being the kind of guy that could go out and make a record all by himself. So it was, uh, it had that nice freshness of a beginning. After a few years of post-college misadventures, Barlow had been on the verge of relocating to the Bay Area, in part to work with Weir. But his father fell ill, and Barlow returned to Pinedale, Wyoming, to tend to his father and soon take over the Barcross Ranch, where he'd grown up, and where Weir had visited and worked for a summer as a teenager. In January 1972, while Jerry Garcia toured the East Coast with Howard Wales, Bobby Weir decamped for the Barcross Ranch. He had studio time booked for the next month and needed to finish off more songs. It was the first of many songwriting sessions with Barlow. As much as we could, I went out to the ranch in uh, in Wyoming and hung there, lived there for a, a while, and we'd get up in the morning and feed cattle for most of the morning and then come back and write for the rest of the day. They had just one problem they had to solve before they could get down to work. We were living in this uh, in this cabin a uh, couple, two or three miles from the from the main ranch house. We were living out and <laughs> there was nobody, nobody within miles of us. So we couldn't we couldn't bother anybody. And but the cabin we we were uh, we were living in was haunted. And so we had to deal with that. The ghost was bothering my dog because the, the ghost trying to climb into a body. They're trying to that's the that's what they they seem to think they want. And the dog didn't want him living in the ghost coming in and inhabiting his body. So uh, it got loud at night and messy as well. Weir had brought his dog with him, a Malamute named Moondog, less than a year old. And according to Barlow's memoir, around three in the morning, Moondog freaked out. Barlow wrote, The dog did a couple of revolutions around the kitchen and left a dog-high line of liquid shit around the full circumference of the room. Barlow and Weir went back to bed after cleaning it up, but the ghost woke up Weir again soon thereafter. So I called my friend Rolling Thunder, and he told me, okay, well, here's how you put the ghost out at night. Make sure the dog's in, put the ghost out. And uh, cedar chips and uh, and opening all the windows and stuff like that. And, of course, it's the middle of winter in Wyoming. About 8,000 feet, so it was cold. You know, I'd put the ghost out, put the dog in, and go to bed. And get up in the morning and let the ghost back in. He could get in as as long as the house wasn't smoked up with with cedar smoke and all that kind of stuff. And uh, everything worked out. Barlow's account is a little different, with Weir smearing charcoal on his face from kitchen matches, waking to discover Weir looking, as Barlow delicately put it, like Al Jolson about to break into my mammy. It was one of those rare moments in my life when I was totally speechless. Maybe a year later, but uh, it was in, in March, and I was out there and I was writing, and we were having a rain-slash-snowstorm, and... We got hit by lightning, winter thunder. We had a lightning rod that was attached to the water heater where the ghost lived. We had this agreement where he didn't make noise while I was playing, but as soon as I stopped, he'd start he'd start rattling and make all kinds of noise with the water heater. As soon as I started playing, he, he shut up. And that worked pretty well for the longest time. And then one day, we got hit by lightning. Lightning strikes from the ground up, and so... He was there, and then he wasn't. He was gone. So uh, I think he finally uh, escaped being a ghost and finally moved on. They were able to get to work soon thereafter. Here's how Barlow remembered Weir's working habits when he was interviewed for the Grateful Dead movie in 1974. Here's a way in which he's pretty inertial, but it has some good side effects. You know, he's so lazy that once he gets going, 
He's too lazy to stop. And if you can get a little momentum set up, he can really work very well. I've seen him uh, sit down on his guitar for five hours every morning for two or three weeks straight and uh, beat out stuff that didn't please him. It sounded pretty good to me. It didn't please him. But he was willing to go on doing it just because he'd started doing it. During Weir's time in Wyoming, the two finished two songs, sort of, and got nearly there with two others, also sort of. There's a work tape circulating among your favorite tapers, probably recorded during Weir's January 72 trip to the Barcross Ranch. The other voice on it is most likely John Perry Barlow. Okay, this is Black-Throated Wind as it stands. I'm going to do the first verse. It's not so much a demo as a work tape. Weir only sings a little bit of black-throated wind into this particular microphone because it was yet unfinished. This tape was a guide for Barlow to write the other verses before Weir got to the studio in a few weeks. It's got a few different chords. I like the loner folk vibe. Though John Perry Barlow had never tried writing songs before Mexicali Blues in early 1971, he'd had a premonition of it a few years earlier. His memoir, co-written with Robert Greenfield, takes its name from the chorus of Black-Throated Wind. Black-Throated Wind Keeps on pouring in It's words of a life where nothing is new Ah, Mother American I In Mother American Night, Barlow writes, Oddly enough, I had written the chorus while riding on a bus to the airport in Kathmandu, and not anywhere near drowning in the Mother American Night. If anything, I was drowning in the weird Nepali night. It was the first thing that ever showed up that seemed like it might be part of a song and not a poem. It still needed a bunch more verses. Seemingly, they only finished one song beginning to end at the Barcross Ranch, which is why it's not on the tape. I woke today Felt your side of bed The covers were still warm Where you'd been laid Along with the ghost, the Finn cabin came furnished with a print by the painter Andrew Wyeth depicting a Native American with their arms open. One night at the cabin, Weir and Barlow were drinking wild turkey, and Weir told Barlow, You know what he's saying, don't you? 
What? Looks like rain. And with that prompt, Weir's Chords became a song. But I'll still sing you love songs Written in the letters of your name Brave as storm to come For it surely looks like rain The song's narrative didn't come from any part of either of their lives. Barlow would write, At that point, my experience with being in love was pretty much restricted to Shakespeare, opera, and novels by women with three names from the southern states in which someone would swoon. I had often thought about what actually being in that sort of love would be like, and had concluded that it was a fiction humans had created to make us all feel more painfully aware of our limitations. Both Weir and Barlow would grow into the song. Amid the cattle and the blizzards and the ghost, that was all they were able to get done face-to-face on the ranch in terms of setting words to music. Barlow had Weir record him a version of Jack Straw, debuted recently by The Dead. I kind of like to have you do Jack Straw just so I have something to do. This is for playback purposes only. This here's Jack Straw, take one. We can share what we've got of yours Cause we done share all of mine But mostly, Barlow had Weir record the instrumental skeletons of five more songs Some of which were fairly developed That particular bit wouldn't resurface, but this one might sound familiar. Its working title was apparently Madrigal. All right, Madrigal. This one's uh, Madrigal, take one. Oh, wait a minute, take two. <laughs> take three. Not an easy Madrigal, apparently. Bits of the Weather Report Suite Prelude, recorded in 1973 for Wake of the Flood, had been floating around since early 1969 and would have to continue to float for another year or so. One of the pieces already had a name, and a pretty distinct melody. Okay, cue in. Okay, this here is uh, Cassidy. It had been around for a while. That song was popping out right when Cassidy Law, my goddaughter, was also popping out. She was busy being born, and so was that song at the same time. And so that was in August, I think. Cassidy Law was born in August 1970 at the Rucka Rucka Ranch in Nicasio, where Weir was living. 
just as the dead were about to start recording American Beauty. He'd been working at it for a while. According to Dennis McNally's Long Strange Trip, Robert Hunter wrote a set of lyrics for the music titled Blood Red Diamonds, but it didn't stick. Sometime in 71, Barlow tried his own hand at it, but Weir rejected the first results. After Weir packed up and headed back to California, Barlow made the connection between Cassidy Law and Neil Cassidy, the hero of On the Road, Mary Prankster, and one-time roommate of Bobby's at 710 Ashbury in the fall of 1967. In 1994, Barlow wrote an illuminative essay titled Cassidy's Tale, which we've posted a link to at dead.net slash deadcast, where he describes the sweet and peculiar relationship between Weir and Neil Cassidy, nearly 20 years his senior. On February 18th, Barlow received word that his father was dying in Salt Lake City. He ran through his work at the ranch and prepared to drive through the blizzards to see him. He wrote, Somewhere in there, the words to Cassidy arrived, complete and intact. I just found myself singing the song as though I'd known it for years. It was a rich meditation on Cassidy Law, busy being born. Norman Barlow, busy dying, told through the disembodied voice of Neil Cassidy, some flashing spirit of life connecting them. That same day, back in San Francisco, Weir was recording the instrumental tracks for what was already called Cassidy. Barlow would make it back to San Francisco soon. On Valentine's Day, 1972, Bobby Weir oversaw his first session as a band leader, beginning two weeks in Studio C at Wally Hyder's San Francisco studio, the same comfortable room where the dead had recorded American Beauty in the summer of 1970. It went by in a blurry, blinding flash. I couldn't afford many sessions, so we, uh, we packed them to the point where stuff was just happened blindingly fast. At the board were Bob Matthews and Betty Cantor, the production team behind Working Man's Dead, and who would soon help create Europe 72. Also, the Grateful Dead were with him. It ended up being their their studio album for that year, but that that certainly wasn't the way it was approached in his mind, and uh, that was what made all the difference. It, it became that later on, that's all. Originally, Weir hadn't planned to use the Dead as his band, but he hadn't really made any plans at all. Later that summer, he told Crawdaddy, I pretty much knew in the back of my mind what would happen. I go and get the time booked and start putting the material together. Everybody gets wind of the fact that I got the time booked, and I may be going into the studio. So one by one, they start coming around. Lesh and Garcia. Hey, man, I hear you got some time booked Wally Hyders. Need a bass player, a guitarist, etc., etc. It's kind of like the Tom Sawyer routine with the fence. And I say, well, I want to be careful and get just the right musicians for the record, you know. Of course... I ended up with The Grateful Dead on the record, which I figured up front. I don't have any reason to believe anybody else thought it'd be any different, and we had a great time making the record. The guys played wonderful lines, and all the instruments really knitted together pretty well. Everyone was listening to each other. You could hear that. It certainly helped that his bandmates had already played half of the songs in concert. But the sessions began with one they hadn't.
running aground Blind in the light of the interstate cars If they'd had time to rehearse Black-Throated Wind, it was only a few days, and before the song was entirely finished. Barlow had finished the lyrics in time for the vocal overdubs, but he was still in Wyoming when the session started. Weir would never be entirely happy with the results, and the song disappeared when the band took their road hiatus in late 1974. It would only reappear with the dead a decade and a half later. After the basic tracks for Black-Throated Wind, the band continued with some of the songs they were already familiar with, including one that had been released on a dead album less than six months before. Playing in the band had kept a fairly static arrangement during its early performances, documented on Skull and Roses. But in Fall 71, after that album was already out, the band dropped in an extended guitar break that quickly became more of a jam. Keith. That was from December 10th, 1971 at the Fox Theater in St. Louis on the Listen to the River box set. It wasn't a very long jam, but it was pretty sweet. And when the dead assembled at Wally Hyder's in February, it did something that Grateful Dead songs don't usually do in a recording studio. It got even longer. And not only longer, but it became one of the most thrilling jams the dead ever played in a studio, setting off all their fireworks in rapid succession. It's in 10-4 time, which nobody in, in that ensemble had, had a chance to play with until we got there. The fact that that whole jam remained in the 10-4 time signature, well, that's, I think, quite an accomplishment you know, for a bunch of young musicians. session unlocked what would become one of the Dead's biggest jams. The take on Ace was barely seven and a half minutes, longer than any version the band had yet played on stage. By the end of 1972, it was regularly between 20 and 30 minutes a night. For the next seven years especially, the song was a portal to strange places, the band dropping decisively into the Dorian mode at the start of the jam. When Brett Midland joined in 1979, 
the arrangement shifted slightly, with less of an emphasis on the far-off places, though it still remained one of the band's most dependable springboards for the duration of their career. There are versions they still haven't finished. The one on Ace also featured the newest member of the Grateful Dead. Keith Godshow had joined the Dead in September 1971, and Ace was his first time in the studio with the band, and really his first time recording in a studio period. Donna Godshow, on the other hand, had logged at least as many studio hours as anybody in the Dead. She'd sung with the band briefly at Winterland over New Year's, but the studio was her natural home, and Ace was when she really joined the band. We talked extensively to Donna for an episode all about her last fall, and one thing we learned was that, until the Ace sessions, nobody had ever called her Donna Jean. It was a kind of a preemptive thing of getting me involved more specifically in singing with the Grateful Dead. That's when Bobby first coined calling me Donna Jean. Here I was, born in the South and lived here all my life, and I was never called Donna Jean. <laughs> it was just Donna. You know, you hear the cliche of people down here, Billy Bob and Peggy Sue and all of that. I was never called Donna Jean. And Bobby started calling me Donna Jean, and so it's all his fault. That was old days. That was old days. In the country aesthetic, there's a sort of formality that occurs, and you hear it in the South a lot. People uh, address other people with their, uh, you know, their middle name and stuff like that. And Donna Jean was, uh, I, I guess I maybe I hung that on her. I, I, I didn't know that. To this day, Bobby is one of my best friends. I love that guy. We are, a, we're brothers and sisters. Donna would appear on four of the album's songs, including the opener, Greatest Story Ever Told. The Bridge was a new addition since the early versions of the tune the previous spring. It had come a long way since its pump song origins. For starters, the herky-jerky rhythm of the water pump from Mickey's Barn had been smoothed over with a relentless gang-of-one groove by Bill Kreutzmann and a pump of a different kind, Garcia's boot on a wah-wah pedal. The song featured a subtly augmented Grateful Dead lineup, where the same bassist who'd also appeared on American Beauty's opening track, Dave Torbert of the New Riders of the Purple Sage. The new arrangement would quickly become a barn burner for the dead, powered by what some tape traders refer to as the St. Stephen Jam. Here's a gnarly version recorded at the Stanley Theater in Jersey City on September 27, 1972. Now Dick's Picks 11. Ask a tapester about the next night. In the 80s, the song became a power jam of a different kind, 
even more worlds removed from Mickey's Pump in Novato. Here's one from July 1989, Trucking Up to Buffalo. He asked me for mercy, gave him a gun. Now and again, these things just got to be done. We'll catch up with Greatest Story Ever Told again momentarily. As with the Dead's work on their previous studio album at Wally Hyder's, Ace was a chance to try things out that wouldn't necessarily work in a live setting. Weir called in a small horn section, credited as Louis Gaska and the Space Rangers, featuring Gaska and Snooky Flowers, his bandmate in Janis Joplin's Cosmic Blues Band. At the end of the sessions, they overdubbed horn parts onto Mexicali Blues, One More Saturday Night, and Black-Throated Wind. The studio version of Looks Like Rain featured the song's lovely early arrangement with Jerry Garcia on pedal steel. do that part live. But it also featured Bobby Weir's first encounter with a string section, an unnamed ensemble arranged by Ed Bogus. that there was the guy who did the the string arrangement that I brought him in and he got a little too busy for me so I had to sort of lose some of the stuff he did and really listening back to it I think I just had it in my head that this this song needs strings if I had really bothered to uh, take the time to listen to what, what Jerry was doing on the pedal steel it didn't need strings because he was doing that. But I was young and brash, and I wanted strings, and by God, I was going to have strings. That's what it sounded like with strings. Here's what the slightly dialed down new mix sounds like.
Metal Steel would only last 10 versions with the dead before somebody, most likely Jerry Garcia himself, decided it was a pain to lug and tune a pedal steel just to play it on one song a night. I like the window where Phil Lesh sang the harmony part, officially the first arrangement tweak to the just-recorded album, like this version from Dick's Picks 30, the last night in New York before heading off to Europe 72, which also has Pigpen on B3. Even if the subsequent versions lacked all the extra strings, the song would evolve a different kind of drama. By the late 80s, summoning up Raging Storms, a place for powerful big venue Garcia shred, and for Weir to extend the ending. Our buddy Mr. Completely calls out a musical development we missed on the In and Out of the Garden box set episodes, which we'll place here. Specifically, that between 1981 and 1982, Garcia refined and articulated the cool counter melody that became a hallmark of the song's vocal outro. Here it is from Madison Square Garden, September 21st, 1982, the song coming into even more focus 10 years after it was written. Looks like rain and it feels like rain. No more rain today. No, they go away. All my life I've seen rain and rain and rain and rain and here comes some more rain. Ah. There were at least two songs that had never been performed beginning to end before the Ace sessions, each having the words added in the studio with Weir singing off the lyric sheet. One would become an enduring classic for the dead. Let's start with the other. Look out, because here comes some free advice. Walk in the sunshine. Watch for the bright sun. Be all those things you're able to be. For the next bit of storytelling about the song that we now know as Walk in the Sunshine, we're going to alternate between a tale we're told at the first of the two Ace 50 shows in New York and a version told by lyricist John Perry Barlow to David Gans on KFOG in 1986. We're going to bring out another guest, but first I've got to tell you all the story. <laughs> it's not a happy story, it's not a sad story, but it is a weird story. At the time, we were under duress. Uh, we had to, we were already in the studio, and uh, Weir and I had been battling over this song, and my father died the night before that was wrote, written, and I had to write the song and get back, for obvious reasons. When we were making uh, the, the Ace record, it, it came down to, as always does, it came down to the last night before the last day of sessions that I had in, in the, uh, at Wally Hires. Uh, studio in, in San Francisco. I had one day session left. We'd been in there for a week or so, maybe two. I don't remember. But um, we we had one left, one day left, and we had a bunch of vocals to do. Um, and I, I still had to finish the lyrics on this one, this tune we called the Sea Shuffle. What are you gonna play? 
sleep so I was working with my, my old pal John Barlow on the on the lyrics. And I I said, hey, hey John, why, why I'm gonna go to I gotta go to bed. I gotta be fresh in the morning. I gotta be able to sing. No problem. I'll finish the uh me me and Frankie, Frankie was my girlfriend at the time. We'll, we'll stay up and we'll uh, we'll finish those lyrics for you. No problem. Norman Barlow, John Perry's father, died on February 24, 1972, at age 66. His son needed to return to Wyoming. Then uh, I was feeling especially burnt out, and I wrote the first thing that came into my head, and it was just terrible. It was straight out of a greeting card, a sort of a hip, hip uh, cosmic greeting card. Go placidly amid the noise. Yeah, noise. right. Well, that's the desiderata is a lot better. Painfully obvious. I mean, it was it was like fourteen-year-old, very earnest poetry, but it was all I could come up with. I was just shell shocked. So I figured that the only way that I could get weird to do it, so I could get out of the way and whatever the consequences, was to write something that was really twisted and perverse. That would uh, make the sunny sentiments of walking the sunshine seem much more palatable, and then he'd agree to do it, and I could leave. Uh, so I wrote a song called "The Dwarf." It began with the immortal couplet, I'm just a small man. I'm not a tall man. John had been reading a book called The Dwarf. And he wrote a dark set of lyrics. I mean, we're talking dark. Based on the Pars Lagervist novel about a very twisted little man able to manipulate everybody in power around him. It's kind of a great song now, I see, but I figured if I gave Weir this twisted song, it would work. The pity was that I didn't that I didn't throw away Walk in the Sunshine and just give him the dwarf and let Devil take the hindmost. That's what I should have done. <laughs> and he knew damn well that there's no way that, you know, I was 20-something in my early 20s, and he, he knew that, and it was still still sort of the, uh, the, the flower child era, and I, I just wasn't going to sing those lyrics, and he knew that. He just wrote them because he wanted to. And, uh, and then he wrote another set of lyrics, and he says, we'll go for these. And, and they're, you know, sort of hippy-dippy, and, and, uh, and I think I sang them one time in the... Uh, I think I sang him one time in the studio, just straight through. Try not to hurry. It's just not to worry. Leave it to those or put up your time. You've got the deep six your wristwatch. You've got to try and understand. The time As I recall, you can you can actually hear on the studio recording that my voice is starting to go at the at the end of the at the end of at the end of the song. 
And that was it. That was done singing for the day and for the project. That's the worst song we ever wrote. I didn't like Walk in the Sunshine, and I still don't like the name, or that part of the song is, you know, it's a little too hippy-dippy for this boy. The Dead never even played it. Though if you squint your ears at the off-mic between-song chatter on the March 22, 1972 show, just a few weeks later, you can actually hear Phil Lesh suggested off-mic. That left one more song to tie up. Around the time the album came out, we are told Crawdaddy, Cassidy fell together fast. It was the last song we did in the studio. Earlier in the sessions, we are recorded a basic track with just his guitar and Bill Kreutzmann's drums, reminiscent of Jerry Garcia's strategy for his own debut. That night, I overdubbed a couple of rhythm guitar tracks and a lead track and threw them all together to make this sort of lush, a bit out of tune, sort of angular sound I wanted. He told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the guitars aren't quite in tune, and I feel they really shouldn't be. But besides Kreutzmann, it's all weird, with no additional piano or bass. As the sessions were getting going, Barlow showed up with a sheet of lyrics. We remembered that, I just looked at the words and said, beautiful. Thought it was just dynamite and just right. And they were. I just folded the paper up, put it in my pocket, and didn't even attempt to make sure that the words coincided with my melody line. It helped that he had given Barlow such a tightly phrased demo for the song. Weir worked out a vocal arrangement with a newly renamed Donna Jean, and off they went. Crawdaddy writer Andy McHale observed that it was odd that one more Saturday night usually closed dead shows, but it was Cassidy that closed Ace. Weir told him, It seems that after one more Saturday night, you're all jacked up. At least, one more Saturday night jacks me up. And if you're all filled up with energy, it seems a nice gesture to me. Not to sedate that energy, but more to put a finishing touch on it. In my opinion, Cassidy is a much more polished song. At least the vibes I'm trying to put out. The picture I'm trying to paint is a much more mellow sort of thing. 
Which is not to say lazy, laid back, slow or down, because it's a very up song to me. In some ways, it was like walking the sunshine. It didn't make it into the dead sets in 1972. In fact, it wouldn't receive its debut for another two years. The so-called Wall of Sound Test at the Cow Palace on March 23, 1974, released as Dick's Picks 24. But it would take another three years after that until Cassidy truly found its home in the Dead repertoire, re-debuting in June 1976 and remaining an anchor in Weir's songbook ever since. In 1980, the Dead would create an acoustic arrangement, releasing it on Reckoning the following year. And by the mid-80s, the intimate album closer had become a jumping point for full-powered Grateful Dead Thunder that sometimes made a run for more open territory, like this righteous version from View from the Vault 4, recorded July 24, 1987 in Oakland. Ace was mixed at Alembic in early March, just before the dead departed for points east and then easterly on their Europe 72 tour. Cover art was assigned to and created by Stanley Mouse and Alton Kelly, operating just across San Rafael from the dead office, extrapolating the Ace motif into a lowbrow psychedelic playing card fantasia. The Ace version of One More Saturday Night was pulled to be the dead's new single for the tour, and they promoted it overseas on West German and Danish television Luxembourgian pirate radio, and elsewhere, playing it so often that they included a version from the last night of the tour on the subsequent Europe 72 album. In the studio getting it ready for release, they added new answer vocals. As we've discussed before on this podcast, album release dates in the late 60s and early 70s were slippery things, and it seems like Ace arrived in stores around the country in mid-June 1972, just after the dead returned from Europe. 
it received warm reviews. Robert Criscow was into it, mostly. Side 2 is pretty fantastic, he wrote in his Consumer Guide. Especially The Big Ballad Looks Like Rain, and Weir's own Rockabilly Epiphany, One More Saturday Night. And new pianist Keith Godshow sounds like a cross between Little Richard and Chick Corea, which would make him the best ever. He had some unkind things about Walk in the Sunshine, but apparently so does everybody, and still gave the album a solid A. Here's John Perry Barlow speaking with David Gans in 1986. He hadn't been writing songs before that. Neither had I. That record uh, has aged very well, too. I mean, I don't, I don't look back at those songs, with, with the exception of one of them. I don't look back at those songs with the usual degree of remorse. In late June, Weir headed east on a brief promotional tour for the album. No musical performances, stopping in St. Louis, Boston, New York, and perhaps elsewhere. He told Crawdaddy that the Dead would like to rehearse a brass section, and maybe even a string section, and do a tour like that. We've kicked the idea around, but we're nowhere near doing it yet. They'd do a run with a horn section the following fall. The strings would have to wait. Cue the brass and strings, please. playing in the band from the bonus disc to the new Ace 50 album, with a complete performance of Ace recorded at Radio City Music Hall in April 2022. Weir teamed up with the Marin Symphony Orchestra for a performance in 2011, but it wasn't until late 2020 that Weir really got brass and strings of his own. We got strings and we got wind instruments. The expanded Wolf Pack debuted on New Year's Eve 2020 at Weir's TRI Studios, a combination horn and string section, creating perhaps the richest palette Weir's ever had in his command as a band leader, releasing a two-volume Live from Colorado album on Third Band. We'll be exploring more of the Wolf Pack in our next episode. At Radio City, they put their mark on the Ace songs. That's Barry Sless on Pedal Steel. One More Saturday Night wasn't even the first song to continue its own organic evolution since the completion of Ace. That was Looks Like Rain, first getting a new harmony vocal in the spring, and over the summer, losing the pedal steel, though it wouldn't really move into the dead repertoire until early 73. For most artists, the notion of revisiting one of their own classic albums straight through is often synonymous with recreating the details of the original album. Nothing about Ace 50 has been that, which shouldn't really be a surprise. Virtually none of the songs have stopped changing since 1972. We'll delve into one of the more extreme examples. Alice, 
A couple of tents and some stale cigarettes. That's from March 26, 1990 in Albany, on the Spring 1990 box. That tour, Weir debuted a pretty drastically rewritten version of Black Throated Wind. If I came up with some new lyrics, I can't remember what they were. I can't deny I'm going to have to look into that. You've piqued my curiosity. Alex Allen of Whitegum has posted his transcriptions, and we've posted links at dead.net slash deadcast. Check them out on the Spring 1990 box set. In 1989, Bobby talked to our buddy Blair Jackson about what he didn't like about Black-Throated Wind. Bobby told Blair, The character in that particular tale is not somebody I can get behind. It's always been a poor fit for me. There's stuff in there I just didn't want to be singing. It seemed like words to fill out a melody rather than something I really cared about, and that finally got in the way. I've always felt like the words I was singing in some specific places, I won't list them, were like wearing lead shoes in a track race. I couldn't carry those words through the melodic and harmonic changes that the rest of the song had suggested to me, so it needs some adjusting. A few months later, we are adjusted it. The new lyrics wouldn't stick. Instead, after not too long, the song went full circle back to its original words, which is how it stayed through 1995 and beyond. The new lyrics became just another part of the song's history, something else to check out on the old tapes. Or you could just check out the new tapes, by which, of course, I mean Ace 50. Black throated wind. Most of those songs, uh, almost all those songs, uh, we we played uh, pretty much all the time. From the Wolf Brothers, please welcome bassist Don Waz. We were on tour, so we started working them up. Most of them we do, so it wasn't that hard. We'd start throwing, you know, one ace song in every night to make to get tight. So by the time we got to Radio City, we pretty much knew them. So the songs were written to sort of evolve. That's that's that's. It's kind of how we do things, or how I learned to do things. In fact, part of Ace 50 has been about literally altering the details of the original album. I just remixed the record. More more recently, uh, Derek Featherstone and I put, uh, mostly Derek, put a, uh, a more modern sort of mix on it. Brought the vocal a little bit further up and stuff like that. And I'm delighted to say that for uh, 2021, maybe 22 year old kid i could really i i was i could hit a note you know i, I can hang and hang on to it you 
And so a lot of it came back to me in the course of remixing it. A lot of over the notes that we went and, and that kind of thing. It uh, it was well recorded. Certain guys in the ensemble tended to rush. I mean, I don't do that very often. And, and so that was sort of pulling at the groove because I like to sit in the groove and not rush or not drag, just, you know, just play a little forward, play a little back, all that kind of stuff. And some guys only go forward. There was a little of that nagging at me. So in addition to remixing the album, Weir got to revisit it, adjust the tempos, and tweak the grooves. Ace 50 isn't so much a progress report as it is the progress itself. For every song in the album, one could create a title card to shorthand what it's been up to since 1972, like at the end of The Graduate. Calling an album an album is an archaic leftover from the days of 78 RPM shellac discs, when music fans kept their collections in albums filled with slots for different records. Grateful Dead albums, and Ace especially, might be considered with this very much in mind, capable of accumulating new memories and perspectives over the years, with the original only a placeholder for the ideas as they once stood. The shows at Radio City were just as much a showcase for Weir's new band as they were a celebration of Ace. On this reissue of Ace, at least some versions will have the live show from uh, Radio City. And one of the things that we did in, in the mixing was to move Bobby's guitar and Barry's guitar into the center. So it so was one thing. And then you really get the interplay. Then it, it, it becomes this whole other thing that they, they weave. It's guitar weaving is what it is. Plain and simple, you know, same thing as, as what Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood talk about all the time. How they, you listen to Beast of Burden, you don't necessarily know who's playing what. Uh, you just hear the thing, the end result. And it was the same with Jerry and, and Bobby. But it's going on with Barry and Bobby, too. And, and by putting them together, it, it really emphasized that. It's real cool. At the Ace 50 shows, Weir didn't even sing its opening song. Nashville musician Tyler Childers, a recent friend of Weir's, born nearly 20 years after Ace's release and singing into the future. I was really impressed with uh, Tyler Childers, man. I, I thought he came in and uh, he's a very interesting guy. I played with him one time at the Americana Music Awards years ago, but I, I didn't fully understand his breadth as, a, as an artist. He's studying tanning leather <laughs> you know and, and he he's, he's got a on a, a working farm that he that he owns and lives on you know so he he's got some you know he's got some interests that are not that 
usual among lead singers. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, on, like when I heard the recordings back, I thought he sang the fuck out of those songs, man. He sounded great. Just like the songs can become reflections of constant change through variables in their performances, they've also surely accreted a half-century of memories for dead fans through decades of live shows and live tapes. Walk in the Sunshine, by comparison, is a blank slate. Walk in the sunshine Watch for the bright side That was Britney Spencer joining Bobby Weir and the gang for Walk in the Sunshine at the Ace 50 shows. A 50-year-old song living, for four more minutes, nowhere near the past. It's almost surely the only song in the set that Weir couldn't sing in his sleep. It's not a Grateful Dead song, just a piece of music from a half-century-old album turned to a his-hers duet and airdropped into the weird year of 2022 with barely a carry-on. was Weir's solo debut, and though everybody involved considers it a dead album, it also exists in a liminal space outside the band's proper discography, the result of a subtly different decision-making and even legal process. Maybe because of this, it's as unselfconscious and natural as the Grateful that ever sounded in a recording studio, tricked into being somebody else for a few weeks. Approached from another angle, Ace is one of the late-period classics recorded during the golden age of Wally Heider's San Francisco studio by a promising 24-year-old songwriter and some of the hottest talents on the local music scene, happy to lend their friend a hand as he got out into the world. They also happen to be his bandmates. What Ace presupposes is, what if they weren't? Thanks very much to our special guests from this episode, Bobby Weir, Donna Jean Godshow McKay, and Don Was. Extra special thanks to friend of the Deadcast, David Gans, for contributing audio from his interview archive. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and keep your tour stories coming by recording yours over at stories.dead.net. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved. <laughs>